All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today is John Kelly. John is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Puck, which is a new subscription-based media company. And John, thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me, Bradley. So, so let, let me actually start with sort of the hard question that, that John and Hugo uh, are, are good friends. And so Hugo wanted me to ask John <laughs> some hard questions. And so I'll, I'll start with the first one, which I think is actually a very fair question, which is, there is so much content out there. There are so many Substacks, so many podcasts, so much of everything. Like, what's the argument for why people need another thing? I, I felt v- very deeply that there was a hole in the market exactly for this, for the inside conversation at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. There are, to be sure, many brands that that cover the sort of front line of this terrain from the biggest news organizations in the country to to trades. But I felt that there was not a brand that was providing the inside information beyond that. I mean, you know, we sort of think of our, our mandate as almost the last mile of the news. We know that our audience is already consuming the Times, the Journal, and Bloomberg. But I also know from having worked at a lot of those places, and I mean this completely respectfully, um, they have a certain mandate, and there's a certain kind of uh, piece of the story that they're not going to cover. And the true insiders know that, and they and they crave that, uh, as do the concentric circles of people around them. And that's what we endeavor to do. So you started out kind of working for Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair. Um, what were you doing for him? And like Hugo claims that you were the guy that carried the briefcase. Is that true or was it more substantive than that? Uh, th- that was true. Um, I started, I went to, I grew up in New York. And so, and I went to college in New York, which was a real benefit when you're trying to get a job because you're, you're available um, when they need someone rather than some, you know, kid who's in school in Ohio. So I actually started working at Vanity Fair before I graduated from college. And I was the lowest of the low. I was an assistant to assistants. And you know, my day was spent running to, to get them salads. Uh, I didn't even do the dry cleaning beat. You know, I, I was too low on the, on the pecking order for that. Look, you, gotta but, be, you need a little bit of training to handle the dry cleaning. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. You know, yeah, the dry cleaning and, and, and making uh, exact change and, and tipping is, is complicated stuff. But Graydon needed a, a second assistant in his office. Someone had quit. I can't remember exactly why. And it was a lot of grunt work. Uh, there was a briefcase that I did carry. Uh, proud to say I did. I trimmed flowers on Monday when they came into the office um, to put in the, the vase in the um, in the main sort of uh, uh, foyer. And uh, the, the trade-off was I was 21 and I was around this legend. And I was around him all the time. And, you know, I think that Graydon has a truly unteachable genius. And I think a lot of people don't, understand it because they don't know how to define it. Um, he was, he is sort of the most fashionable person that a literary or political person's ever met and the most literary and political person that a fashion person's ever met. And he could segue between these worlds w- with so much nuance and sophistication and, and ease. And I, I was able through my proximity to see how he did that. And it's ineffable. I mean, I, I couldn't possibly explain it, but I got it. And I think uh, the, the key to it all, and actually, I'm kind of repeating a, a line that, that Hugo told me years ago, the, the key to what were once magazines was creating a connection. And Graydon knew how to do that. And, you know, part of what we're trying to recreate for this new age is sort of post magazine world is how you create connection on uh, new digital platforms. Anyway, is the connection that he created, is that something that's kind of intrinsic and inherent 
that if you know how to do that, you can do it kind of in any era? Or was he someone who was kind of a, a master of his time, um, but what worked for him at Vanity Fair back then, you know, wouldn't work today? I'm also repeating a Hugo line here uh, to, to humor him. Um, but uh, Hugo used to, when I worked for him at the Times, used to uh, quote this possibly apocryphal Jan Winter quote saying that magazines were for a time the perfect technology. And I think for the, the bulk of Graydon's career, they were. And Graydon knew how to use that medium to speak to people, to speak to a, a you know, elite, influential and and tasteful audience. And we know that that consumer behavior is going away, but absolutely there is a way to recreate it um, on on this new platform. And we're just kind of experiencing that now. And, and I don't want to um, sound like a sycophant, but I think actually Graydon was one of the first to try and take a stab at figuring out what that looks like in the new world. You know, when he started Airmail a couple of years ago, we were coming, you know, we're at the tail end of the Trump years, at the tail end of Web 2.0, when people thought the internet was going to look like one big mashup of Bugs, BuzzFeed, BI, Vice, Huffington Post, where you cared about screaming headlines and, and big traffic. And so much news didn't get covered because you had to obsess over the most popular daily stories. And frankly, there was there was largely, and, and these aren't, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but there was largely a, a watering down of content. Part of that was because, due to the economic forces at work here where, you know, publishers made less money, so they hired younger people to do more work. But uh, I think Graydon began to scratch the surface of what a new generation of elite, sophisticated brands would look like in a kind of direct-to-consumer world. And, and um, we learned a lot uh, uh, from watching do it, and, and uh, we're trying to um, do a, you know, recreate a bit of that magic um, for Puck. Are, are celebrities as kind of relevant and are they sell as many magazines today as they did in, in Graydon's heyday, or, or has the way that we relate to celebrities changed? Well, you know, it's funny. One of, the, um, one of my tasks when I worked for Graydon, I mean, at this point, it's about uh, almost 20 years ago, was he had this big board um, in his office when uh, when he worked at Times Square. It's actually the scene where the the um, uh, where Logan Roy's office in the first episode of Succession takes place, and it was this, this manual. Um, it was this manual board. You literally you print out uh, the name of a story, you print out the name of the writer, and you would like take a, a thumbtack and tack it onto the board, and it was organized uh, with one axis being the months. And the other access being the, um, uh, the the kind of category: world affairs, politics, celebrity, literary. There are about seven or eight of them. And you know, Graydon would would see every story assigned for each issue and sort of get a general sense of what the mix was. And you know, this actually is one of the ways I learned the business because he would email me these um, stories and tell me where to put them on the board. So. Every day after work, when he left to go home, and I'd be there for a couple hours, you know, uh, doing odds and ends. I'd have to update the board because it was kind of like the central nervous system of the entire magazine. At that point, it really was just a magazine. I don't know if we even had a website. Um, so I'd see what the mix was. And one of my tasks was to always print out the name of the cover subject and then um, uh, from the previous year for that same month and the number of issues sold. And I can tell you, even starting in 2004 and on, you could see a softness that was happening. Um, I think that the Jennifer Aniston cover where she told Leslie Bennett about her, you know, the ending of her relationship with Brad Pitt. I mean, I'm going to remember this partly inaccurately, but I think it was around 850,000 copies sold on the newsstands, which wow. was extraordinary. Um, yeah. the, the, the more uh, average issues to my mind, like, you know, Jude Law sitting on a beach or... Um, 
uh, or Angelina Jolie were between 350 and 450,000 issues sold. Um, the, the consumer base of VF in those days was probably about a million, a million point two. And what I always found amazing, uh, I'm not answering your question, but I'll get to it in a second, was that the, the success of that business of, of VF in those, in that era was for this million or million point two subscriber base, you know, who filled out the leaflet and got it in the mail. Plus the let's say three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand um, consumer base people who went to the newsstand to buy it. That one point five million people supported a business that, in its heyday, was probably a you know, a, a dinner with someone the other night who, who uh, was a big executive um, in the two thousands, and they remembered it being a, at least at one point about one hundred and seventy, one hundred seventy five million dollar line of business just just VF in America, and it was based on that stable. Um, subscription base. And I think actually what we're all trying to figure out now in this new generation of the internet is how do you create loyal audiences that can allow you to build uh, annual recurring revenue? But anyway, you asked Bradley about the, the celebrity element. <laughs> yeah, that went away. Part of it was because uh, I think a lot of celebrities missed the pivot to to social media and, and influence, and they uh, they lost a fair amount of their, their direct connection. Um, Certainly another piece of it is, um, you know, as a culture, we make different movies and TV shows than we used to make back in the day. And uh, we also feel like we, you know, proximity matters more in our culture and authenticity. So uh, it would be unfathomable to imagine, um, you know, an Angelina Jolie reality show in, in 2005, yet, uh, you know, that's the obviously the vehicle that, that the Kardashians rode. So, you know, part of the Celebrity industrial. Does she have one? No, no, she doesn't. But I just mean that part of the the, the role that um, that VF played in those days in the celebrity industrial complex was that uh, it was a, it was one of the rare platforms upon which the elite celebrities would tell their story candidly, you know. And now they have to tell their story candidly every single day on Bravo or on Instagram or on Facebook. So I think some of the bloom is off the rose. So. Given that kind of the bloom is off the rose on celebrities and the, and the notion has changed, at Puck, how do you decide then who to focus on? And I think maybe actually to take a step back, give, give the listeners a sense of what Puck is, what you're doing, why you created it, and then let's talk about kind of how you, who, who the celebrity equivalent is for you guys. Sure. Um, so, you know, Puck is, as I mentioned before, the, the it's about the intersection of, of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. And we're powered, I'm you know, pl- proud to say my colleagues are some of the best journalists at work today, like you know, Matt Bellany, Dylan Byers, Bill Cohen, Bertrand Thurston, Julie Yaffe, Teddy Schleifer, Peter Hamby, um, and, and growing, and Tina Wen, excuse me, and, and, and we're growing. And I think one of the things that, that at least people have found interesting about us so far is we have a, a, a different, uh, and dare I say, innovative business model where our journalists are are also equity holders in the company, and they're incentivized by um, our subscription-focused thesis. Um, so we're we're obsessed with a, a certain world where you know the insiders sort of you know dictate the the power strokes of the culture. So is our Jennifer Aniston today, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg? Possibly, yes. I, I think that we recognize that. Um, the same way there were probably you know 30 to 50 celebrities who were always in the news in the 2000s uh in, in our world those those quote unquote celebrities are are joe biden jeff bezos aoc but, but, jeff right, but they're much more, more more powerful right because 
you know, an actor, you know, by orders of magnitude. Yeah. By, 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 by yeah. And I think it's, if you think about like why China has done this whole tech crackdown to me, one of the reasons is they don't want alternate power bases popping up and they look at people like Zuckerberg or Bezos or Musk and like, we don't need that here. Um, and, right. on, you know, in their system of government, they can prevent it from happening. But yeah, I mean, it feels like the, the celebrities now are exponentially more kind of important, which I think is what partly makes Puck interesting because you're talking about people who it's not, they're not just celebrity for the sake of celebrity or because they can act, but they influence the world in a hundred different ways every minute. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think that um, the, the thinking person celebrity, you know, if you will, um, uh, one thing that I believe has changed though in how people consume is in, in the magazine era, if you did a story on Jeff Bezos, you wouldn't do another one for another year because you would make this sort of data-free calculation that readers had gotten their fill and, you know, you had invested months and months in, in the reporting and writing and printing of the whole thing. But now we recognize that people follow these newsmakers voraciously and um, they want to know as much information about them as they can in an up-to-date way. And they also want to know, and I think this is kind of the key part here, they want to know what their peer group is saying and assessing about these people. And there's a, you know, after any story that you may read um, in, in a mainstream publication outside of, of course, you know, a, a mass investigation, there is always the element of how did it play? What, what was missing? What else is there that only the insiders know? And I think that that's the area where, where we are competing and, and hoping to win um, because it's, it's not part of the broad mandate of, of many other uh, brands. And it's, it's essentially our, you know, it's our stock and trade. And so basically, in a weird way, like in the way that the New York Post is not real, it's a tabloid, but it's not a tabloid for the masses or even for kind of the, the court stenographers who live in Brooklyn and Queens. It's for rich people in Manhattan who read the Times <laughs> Journal and then their second paper is the Post because it's a lot of fun. Uh, you're kind of seeing this as sort of an equivalent where comes in later in the afternoon, you've got all these really big name reporters uh, and someone like me or Hugo says, hey, let me take a 10 minute break here and, and see what William Cohen has to say. Yeah, oh, I, I think that that's where we're aiming to be. You know, if, if you just to, to cite some recent examples of, of, of the work that we've done, you know, Bob Wood, Woodward's book has been uh, covered you know, ceaselessly in, in the, the DC and in, in media press. And Julia Offie wrote a recent piece to wit about what, you know, the media in DC actually thinks about Bob Woodward, you know, which I think was a, a sort of heretofore uncovered topic. Um, you know, Matt Bellany has, has just been um, a, an absolute treasure uh, um, with his reporting in Hollywood. You know, if you want to know what's actually going to take place in order to get the Globes back on TV in 2023, you know, in, in this fight between the publicists and the HFPA, he's got that. If you want to know what, you know, what the ICM agents are, are quietly thinking in their offices right now as the CAA merger closes, that's that's a puck story for us. Or, you know, you, you just cited, uh, you know, uh, Bill Cohan's work. Exactly. If you want to know what, I mean, that's a guy who has, you know, he's talking to every banker and, and, and CEO of, of significance, it seems, if you want to know what they're really privately saying about when they think the other shoe is going to drop, Bill knows that. Um, we don't want to be publishing 400 stories a day. We only want to be publishing a few that get to the real core of what's really, really going on. Because we know that our readers and, and listeners are already consuming so much of that information elsewhere. 
we want to be complimentary on, on top of that. And to be honest, like, you know, I grew up in the magazine business. You, you know that that's what magazines used to be. Like platform aside, they were the connection point that leaped over the shoulders of, of what the, the general news industry did. And we know that consumer behavior has changed, but people still want to know what's really going on in their world. And it may be harder for a magazine to tell them that now because of the, the lead times, because of, of print usage behavior. But we aim to be the digital platform that they can turn to to, to really get them into the story. You, you mentioned that the reporters have uh, equity in the business itself. I think change is probably the way that they're incentivized to, to work. Um, does that influence kind of how you run the whatever version of the newsroom is that you have and how you do assignments? Or is it kind of the business is one side and, and the editorial is the other? Well, we treat our reporters because they're equity holders as partners in the business. In fact, their titles are founding partner. Um, in addition to you know Washington correspondent or, or an applicable editorial title, so uh, I've long thought that journalists were not just on the wrong side of the the balance sheet. They're, they they shouldn't be a cost. They should be a, a revenue driver. But that a lot of their ideas were discarded or underappreciated by by management. Um, and so we want them to be our business partners, and we treat them as such. Uh, obviously, our you know editorial process is is scrupulous and it has you know um, there are no interferences. But I do feel very strongly that having journalists who are your your business partners it, it hews everyone to the organization and the mission in just like a totally more profound way. You know, and it, it's hard to even explain it, but just we're in this. You know, and we're in it for the long term to build something meaningful. And, and we've tried to do it, frankly, as transparently as possible because, we, you know, media is changing very, very fast right now. And we want to be able to, you know, to have other people learn from us the way we've, we've learned from, from previous companies that have come out of the gate in this new era. So, so sometimes people say, you know, you're winning when so-and-so hates you, right? <laughs> uh, so Donald Trump hates the New York Times or, you know, maybe Joe Biden hates the New York Post or whatever it is. Um, what would be success for you in terms of who would hate you? That's funny. I actually, um, I try and be a likable enough guy and I don't want anyone to hate me. And I hope that, um, that people think that even if we're critical, that we're fair enough, that we're, that we're not hated. So I'm going to turn that around uh, a little differently. I'll, I'll say this much to, we're just scratching the surface of, of what success looks like. But what we, what we feel very strongly is that the world we cover is actually also our audience. And um, and you have a very, very different relationship with your audience if you're a media brand who knows who your users are. You know, when I uh, started a business about five or six years ago called The Hive, and our users were basically totally anonymized and in, in so many cases intermediated. Um, I didn't know who they were. But when you're in a subscription business, you know who your subscribers are. And it's a it's a powerful, uh, a powerful point of connection. Um, but as to you know, <laughs> making the right enemies or whoever you want to however you want to put it, I think that we have viewed our launch almost like the strategy has almost been like a second marriage. We've all had you know everyone on the team has had uh, you know plenty of success in, in media, but we've also learned a thing or two along the way, and we want to be as you know quiet and capable, um, uh, make positive noise, but we don't want to have to go through some of the um the pomp and circumstance uh that you would if you were launching a brand you know five or six years ago so i think that we want people to to say hey yeah they're they're tough they're credible and and we respect them so i know the one thing that sort of 
I, what I really want out of journalism is to not be told what to think, right? I want mm-hmm. facts. I want color. I want anecdotes. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I, and you know, your reporters are not generally 25 year old millennials, but like, right. I don't care what some 32 year old of New York times, you know, thinks about, you know, inequality or wall street or whatever else. I just want the information. Right. And yet there's, so few media outlets that seem to be willing to kind of treat their readers, listeners, viewers uh, as kind of intelligent enough to make up their own mind. Is that because I'm just wrong and people really do want to be told what to do or what to think? Or uh, is it just, or is there sort of a vocal minority or maybe a silent minority that's about to become vocal saying, you know, the ways that media is being presented to us now really don't work? I think there are a couple things at play here. One is, as the economics of the news business changed over the last 15 years or, or decade, um, there were definitely impacts on the product. I, I think it would uh, it would be um, untruthful to, to suggest otherwise. As you know, cuts in, in newsrooms in particular were made, uh, I think in many cases, less experienced reporters took on uh, beats and storylines that, that they were new to. And at the same time, the downward pressure on the business forced a lot of, you know, bad instincts. Uh, uh, too much publishing, not enough vetting, um, quick takes, and so there's a there's a there has been a general vibe out there of, um, you know, a, a, a not half finished, but a, a two, a many two thirds finished products that were in circulation. Now, certainly the old system was sluggish in its own way, but I think that there um, there was a lot of, of bad work out there that existed for two to make money in the, the digital advertising economy. I, so I don't think you're wrong in, in feeling that way. And certainly the same way that we see on cable news, there's a certain partisanship that, or, or tribalism that works for consumers. You probably see a fair amount of that in, in other you know, media that, that you consume. I don't want to tell anyone what to think. And I actually think what, you know, one of the, for better or worse, the, the, the incredible thing about this country is you, you actually, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. What we do try and do here is tell people what the people in charge are thinking. And I think that that is hopefully a, a powerful antidote to being pushed onto one side of the argument or the other. You don't have to agree with anyone. We're fiercely, I think, nonpartisan as, a, as an organization, um, uh, not because we're trying to be, but because, you know, we're we're pro-success. We're, we're all business people ourselves. Uh, I think we, we cover Wall Street in a way that recognizes that it, it you know, is uh, a important, you know, if, if important, if not one of the most important industries in our country. And I hope that we cover it with the sophistication. Our, our team is filled with journalists who are in their prime, who in many cases, like, you know, Bill Cohen was a banker for 20 years before he was a reporter. It, it imbues him with a whole, with a sense of expertise that, that few in that field have. Matt was a Matt was a lawyer. When he wrote that piece on the correction the other day, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I actually stopped what I was doing to read it because it, oh, it, it felt like he had something I could learn from. So yeah, totally. That, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah, that, that, that piece was, uh, that was impactful for a lot of people but we that's how we viewed this uh mandate across the board matt bellany was an entertainment lawyer before he was a journalist tina Wen was you know worked when it came out of claremont and and worked for tucker carlson before she became a journalist covering the right there's a level of authenticity that matters to us and you know if we're you know getting kind of meta here authenticity is the key media hallmark of our time 
right? We are going to the, to the place now where people, you know, we have to practice kind of farm to table journalism, right? People don't just want to, um, you know, order a, a, a meal off the menu. They want to know how the meal was made and they want the chef to come there. And in our world, that means they want to know how we got to the story. They want to know the author as much as they can. And they want to know the process that, uh, upon which the work was made. And I think we, I think we see that authenticity. It's already sort of happened on television. It, it, it you know, part of this phenomenon uh, in the podcasting boom that, you know, uh, that we're partaking in right now is because people want to know the purveyors of their media more than they ever have before during the ad era. They just wanted everyone to wear makeup and, and read from a script. And, and now we're in a totally different ballgame. Have nice hair. So you know, of, of the four kind of areas you guys cover, so Hollywood, Wall Street, tech slash Silicon Valley, yep. Washington, uh, who do you think, so if someone is a regular reader over a long you know, period of a year or whatever it is, which group is going to pleasantly surprise them the most? And that turns out the people who run Hollywood or Wall Street, whatever it is, are not quite as terrible as we think, if, if you had to predict. I think actually, uh, surprisingly enough, um, it'll be uh, people who have a, a sort of arm's length understanding of, of what actually happens in our nation's capital. Um, you know, we actually published a piece just yesterday uh, uh, that Julia wrote about what's going on now with, you know, the budget, the debt ceiling, BIF, $3.5 trillion, you know, all, all this mess. And in reality, you know, Julia kind of gets to it, um, outside of the 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 cable news noise machine um this is the work of a lot of very earnest civil servants who are trying to pass legislation under uh, relentless deadlines and i think that um you know and i actually i'm I'm sort of speaking for myself here i think that in in my experience uh as being the editor of puck i've found uh my sort of latent cynical view of of washington was misplaced or at least overpronounced that um it really is uh, a a place of, of serious idealism where people are are trying to to do things that that matter to them and and in many cases have picked career paths that are um probably less lucrative than than other opportunities that they could have um easily pursued and i'd also i'd say on the other end of that i think one thing that will surprise people too just the the level of financial sophistication and and um deal making prowess that takes place in hollywood which i think um many people think of as the sort of land of creative executives who who make decisions based on whim but that's been totally transformed uh during the netflix era that it, it is now that that town now really does operate uh, from from its agencies to its studios to the networks Almost exactly like a um, like Silicon Valley. So I, I will note that while you were answering that question, Hugo sent me a text uh, trying to gym me up, saying that you're going to let that go, uh, meaning that you know <laughs> you were nice about Washington, and I think he wants me to now sort of attack you and attack Washington. That's a you know frequent theme of this podcast is sort of what what motivates. Me. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Now this is Hugo now talking. Uh, I don't want you to attack anyone. Uh huh. Um, I, I would just say that if, if if I said such a thing on this podcast, I believe, Bradley, that you would have something else to say. You think so? Oh, yeah. that's hilarious. No, I appreciate breaking the fourth wall here. Thanks, Hugo. But I guess what I'm um, – if you're accusing me of uh, – listeners are stunned right now. They can't believe what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I'm being accused of outright earnestness, I'll, um, I'll try and back myself up by saying there's a lot about Washington that, that is is – 
gross to appalling, particularly some of the, the lobbying elements. And, and certainly there are plenty of people who go there believing in nothing and uh, other than, than seeing how far their powers of persuasion will take them. But I, I do think that uh, by and large, uh, it is the most mission-driven of the corners of power that we cover. Um, uh, and when people in Washington say that they're doing what they do because they believe in a bill, I tend to believe them more now than I would hearing, you know, a, a banker or a social media executive um, uh, making a similar argument. So, so someone who has had a, a career in two of your four areas in, in kind of Washington and politics and then tech in Silicon Valley, I, I would say that a lot of tech founders and people who go to work at startups in, in early stages genuinely do believe in whatever the mission of the company is. And the mission might not be to make the world better in some way. It might just be to deliver some service in a better way or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that the, some of the buy-in there from kind of at least the younger people of startups is not unlike the people who kind of come to the Hill to start their careers. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll at least take it there. But I actually want to close with that. Wait, but let me ask you a question, though, Bradley, since I, I'm, I am curious. Um, I, I'm a student of your career. What do you think the media, besides you know pushing you into um, to believe one thing or another, what do you think the media does not understand about um, Washington uh, or Silicon Valley in, uh, um, in particular? And I will just posit this. I, I think that Many reporters uh, have incredible political instincts, or they, or they, they learn them on the job. And, and many were in student governments. They, they probably understand part of um, uh, of how the world. They have a certain proximity to that, whereas um, they don't have MBAs or have less business experience. So I'm curious, as an executive from um, these overlapping worlds, what do you think yeah. they've, they've they've gotten wrong and and tend to get wrong? And what do you sort? What what kind of coverage do you sort of wave off as um, just not being in the game? Yeah, so I would say this. I think on the Washington, great question. On the Washington side, um, it, it's really that I, I think reporters tend to overcomplicate things frequently in the sense of you know I, this stuff isn't that hard, like. Politicians are desperately, and you've probably heard me say this before on the podcast, insecure, self-loathing people who can't live without the validation of holding office. It literally fills a hole in their psyche that nothing else could possibly do for them. And continuing to fill that hole is what motivates 99% of their decisions at all times, which means in reality, what's happening is not that complicated, right? They're looking at every single issue and saying, what is the action that will make it more likely that I get reelected? or reduce the odds that I don't get reelected, right? And that's really it. And I think oftentimes because reporters are, uh, you know, really smart and highly educated, like so maybe they weren't student government, whatever it is, they're kind of ascribing a lot more to it than, than it really is. And look, as someone who's still even out of our venture fund is constantly running campaigns to legalize whatever startup it is that we're uh, investing in, you know, that's the only thing we're really doing is figuring out, like, what's the thing we're going to tell the governor, the senator, the mayor, whoever it is that we can do to them that's either going to make them say, yeah, I'm into that because it'll help me and I'll do what you want, or that we can threaten them with that they'll want to avoid and therefore do what we want. And I don't think it's that much complicated than that. And I think reporters, either because they're more process oriented or because they don't want to make what they do seem that simplistic, um, tend to miss that. Let me ask you another question too, just sort of uh, relatedly. Um, how do you sort of see the the motivation of, of like the financial element for for lack of a better term in Washington in particular? I mean, uh, you know, when I think about the worlds we cover, 
uh, you can get extraordinarily rich in Wall Street and Silicon Valley, and, and you sure can in Hollywood too. In Washington, um, you know what we tend to see is that people these days, uh, and I'm you know sort of stealing a Mark Leibovich thesis here, but that these days people run for office as a platform to to set up financial success later in life, whether it's you know lobbying or or uh, or investing or, or or you know some yeah, other trade. I mean, how do you see it? I don't. I don't know that I agree with Mark completely on that. In that, I I, I think that just for people in Washington, they just have a different curse, right? They and, and this is true of politics, city governments, state government, whatever. It's not not purely DC. Um, the currency for them is is relevance. They want to mm. be relevant. They want to be somebody, and to them, being relevant is worth more than having more money and being and being unknown. Right? Different people make different sort of choices about kind of what they want, um, and you know, it's just they've got a different currency that they care about than than others other sectors. But you know, to, to to Mark's point, look, as someone who came out of politics and raised a venture capital fund, uh, and it's unbelievably hard to transition yeah, sure. out of politics because at the end of the day, everyone in the private sector thinks that everyone in government is stupid, right? And so I'm going and asking all these institutional investors. Trust me with your money. I'm going to make you more money because I understand politics better than anyone else in the venture community does. And they're like, well, that can't be possible because you wouldn't have been in politics unless you were stupid in the first place. Um, and so the, you know, setting up a lobbying shop, sure. Um, and look, I think there are people who, you know, run for office to then get themselves what they really want, which is like a show on MSNBC or Fox or whatever right. it is. But, but I, I think really by and large, um, it, it actually is uh, a pretty hard transition to make. Wait, guys, I'm going to break the fourth wall again and ask that same question of John because I think it's interesting. So, Bradley, you're talking about how, you know, coming out of politics in the business world, you're like, oh, my God, who's this moron thinks he understands <laughs> business? And, and John, you're, you're coming out of the editorial world. I mean, it's, it's been a couple of years. You, you've been transitioning more to the business side and understanding that. But it, it's, it's sort of similar, right? Like you need to show that you understand business in a way that like, you know, people generally don't think journalists do. Oh, totally. I mean, um, you know, uh, when I left the Hive in, I guess, in 2019 to, uh, to go uh, to TBG. And, you know, I... I did it because I needed. I knew I needed to be. I, I was obsessed with media, but I only knew one small piece of it. I, I, I knew nothing about the operational side as much as I, I thought I did, and it was a total awakening to me. And you know, I um, I was embarrassed retrospectively, embarrassed by how little I knew. And I think that once I was able to really dig in, and it was it was hard work to understand. You know, the the, the CAC and LTV the uh you know to understand the value of certain esps over others to to think like an operator um it was a powerful transformation for me it, it affected how i thought and when, when, we, when we went to the market to raise capital for puck i did feel um correctly or not that i ha i had the chip in my shoulder and i had to show people that i wasn't just a, an editor i was also somebody who was going to be uh, a, a competent founder and, and executive and, and steward of their capital who would understand how to grow it. And hopefully I could use my, uh, you know, my background in, in the creative parts of the business to marry it with my understanding of, of all the fundamental, you know, uh, ways that, that the business was changing. So, yeah. And there was the same bias, Hugo, you're right. The same bias that, that, that Bradley, that you saw, which is, uh, that I, you know, I was some 
some dark brooding poet who needed to go sit in the corner um, and and would only you know be interested in in knowing um, you know hearing the validation about my work and that wasn't the case you know I'm a competitive guy and I, I'm deeply interested in business and I needed to to prove myself. Was it hard to raise the money for the business? So we started raising um, in COVID, and um, so the answer is 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 yes and no. I, I'd been at TBG and I met uh, two of my co-founders at TBG, so we obviously had a tremendous uh, advantage in in that sense. Um, but we wanted to you know raise capital beyond that, and so the hard part was that I think normally we would be going to San Francisco every other week and spending time with with venture partners, you know, um, and we weren't doing that. So it was harder to build those relationships, but at the same time, I think you know, I think you were raising uh, for your SPAC in, in August. I feel like I remember hearing you talk about this. Zoom made things a lot easier. You people yeah. were available, and, totally. and actually changed it changed the nature of August 2022, which is, you know normally August is a month you take off, but um, uh, we had a ton of activity in August because people were finally feeling like they were able to get to work again, um, and. I knew um, uh, I had contacts at, at Standard Industries, um, uh, who I knew fairly well, and uh, so you know, once we were in a position where we were um, we were ready to, to raise, I, I got in touch there, and uh, you know, I wanted to find a way to work together, and, and everything turned out great. So it wasn't um, you know, raising capital is an, is an interesting experience, and I think every single person who has entrepreneurial dreams should should go out there because you, you learn a lot about yourself and a lot about the market. And, um, and these are, you know, if you believe in an idea, you have to go through this process because it will either crumble you or it'll make you believe more than ever in, in the power of what you're trying to do. Uh, but it was different uh, than, you know, we, we did it sitting at the desk I'm sitting at now in, in my attic, uh, looking through a, a computer screen, which is it's totally abnormal, and and hopefully when we raise our B round, we'll be able to to do it. You know, shaking hands and and seeing people in person. Yeah. All right. Last question, and it, it's not about the media at all, but you grew up in the West Village, and that's where you put punk. And I kind of like when I when Hugo told me that, I was like, why doesn't everybody do that? In the sense of like, I understand that if you have thousands of employees and you need to be in some Hudson Yards, that's one thing. But like, why would anyone want to go to Midtown if you could be in the West Village? You're telling me. I, I hope my days in um, in you know high rise office towers are are over at least in the in the foreseeable future. I grew up on Jane Street. My parents still live there. Uh, our office is on Bank Street, only a few blocks away. I love being in the village. I, I think that uh, creatively, it's very powerful to be somewhere like that. Um, uh, it's an incredible place to to work. And, and you know, I think we've all learned during COVID that the way we work has has changed, and the, the environment that you're in, especially when you are in a creative business like ours, I think it makes a lot of difference. So. Uh, Speaking to any entrepreneur out there, if you can find a way to look at your business in the, in the village or Soho, uh, the, the rents are there for the taking. Yeah, and the employees are happier. So, John, uh, how do people sign up to for Puck? Go to Puck.News and um, you can sign up to become a member. It's 100 bucks a year. And as a member, I will say I'm, I'm very much enjoying it. So I would definitely Thank you. So, All right, John Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Bradley.